0: Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper.
1: And I'm Mary Matte. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Our website, as always, is usefulidiotspodcast.com. Go there, support the show, get bonus content, including this week's extended interview with our guest, Chaz Friedman, who is a veteran U.S. diplomat, served as Nixon's interpreter when he went to China uh, many moons ago. And he has a lot of insight to share with us when it comes to the state of the world today, particularly on Gaza and Ukraine.
0: And a little bit of China, too.
1: A little bit of China, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, definitely do that. And, of course, you get the Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, where we try to laugh instead of cry at the media. And we got some really great clips of Biden being absolutely ridiculous.
1: All right. For this week's four basic food groups, we're going to start with Democrats suck. And someone who definitely needs to be pushed to do better is Joe Biden when it comes to his complicity in Israel's mass murder campaign in Gaza. And this week, uh, while taking a jaunt to get some ice cream, one of his favorite pastimes, with uh, late night host Seth Meyers, Biden was asked about the prospects for a ceasefire in Gaza. Well, I hope by the, the beginning of the weekend, I mean the end of the weekend. At least hey, my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close, we're close, we not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday,
0: we'll have a ceasefire. Watch Seth Meyers. He's like, rolls, he's doing an eye roll. Not exactly an eye roll, but like an oh God, here we go. Like he's actually talking about a ceasefire while holding an ice cream cone. Look at his face while Biden's being ridiculous.
1: Hmm. America's back. Remember, that's Joe Biden's catchphrase, yeah. America's back. Well, America's back with a president licking an ice cream cone as he right. muses on the possibility of pausing the mass murder of civilians in Gaza, but it looks to me like Biden was just, as he's known to do, lying through his teeth. Uh, because
0: lying through his ice cream coated teeth.
1: Yes, because this claim of his came on the eve of the primary in Michigan, where he faced a revolt from the people of Michigan over his support for Israel's mass murder, with you know tens of thousands of people voting uncommitted to protest Biden, and so. There's speculation that what he was saying there as he was looking an ice cream cone was just a lie, because soon afterwards, a spokesperson for Hamas responded to Biden and said he had no idea what he was talking about.
0: Well, unfortunately, I, I don't know how uh, President Biden came up with this conclusion. Because the paper which was uh, introduced by the American side in Paris uh, didn't show any real will to achieve a ceasefire. It was closely, most closely to the Israeli position.
1: So that's a spokesperson for Hamas saying he has no idea what Biden's talking about. And if it wasn't embarrassing enough to muse about an end to a ceasefire while licking an ice cream cone, Biden also seems to have doubled down by just simply lying through his teeth and saying what he said. And do you want to know what I call Seth Meyers for standing next to Genocide Joe and getting an ice cream with him? I call Seth Meyers a genocide hoe.
0: Ooh, a genocide hoe. I like it. Very good. Thank you. (laughs) Pulling no
1: punches.
0: (laughs) Well, that certainly sucks. Moving on to Republican suck. Let's hear from Joe Biden's likely opponent, Donald Trump. Let's hear what he had to say at CPAC about immigrants.
2: We're equal opportunity. We have every country. We have countries Honestly, nobody has ever heard of. We have languages coming into our country. We don't have one instructor in our entire nation that can speak that language. These are languages, it's the craziest thing. They have languages that nobody in this country has ever heard of. It's a very horrible thing. I said to the president of Mexico, you're gonna have to give us 28,000 soldiers free of charge. No, 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 Donald, I will not do that. I will not do that, I cannot do that and i said no no you will you will i promise are you gonna do it no 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 i will not do it i said listen you and i friends i really like them a lot so i said let's not you and i just give me a negotiator because i don't want to do this with you and uh he said i will do that and he sent me this very handsome guy very guy so
0: Okay, I don't know what that is. It's like spoken word, poetry, stream of consciousness. He talks about how there are all these languages that people in this country haven't heard of, but then he pivots to talking about talking to the Mexican president, and it sounds like he's speaking to him in English, and he sends him someone handsome. I don't really know what's going on here. I guess he just likes to pepper whatever he's saying with uh, xenophobic rhetoric. That's Trump just being Trump.
1: Xenophobic spoken word.
0: Yeah, xenophobic spoken word. That's Trump. So that's my uh, that's my Republican suck.
1: All right, for right, isn't that weird? Let's turn to a weather report from the scene of a very intense storm, which was heightened by the presence of an unexpected guest. The <laughs> as a weather person really this is the pinnacle of what you can get from one of these live action storm reports because for those who are just listening a fish flew out of nowhere and smacked this reporter in the head knocking him over into the water very dramatic
0: very dramatic he's norwegian lest you think uh he was just speaking english speaking of uh languages in a w- with a weird accent
1: maybe yeah, that's one of those languages that, that donald trump was warning about exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well now you have to worry about the 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 you know flying fish issue during exactly. during storms
0: this all the diseases problem. they could bring in those mm-hmm. norwegians mm-hmm. yeah from from uh, flying fish disease flying f- fish syndrome Well, for Isn't That Terrible, we have an absolutely heartbreaking story from, not surprisingly, the New York Post. Groom's unhinged mom hired goons to throw red paint at bride as she walked down the aisle, and she didn't stop there. So a mother of the groom, a mig, if you will, uh, hired people to throw red paint at her daughter-in-law. Apparently uh, she didn't like the daughter-in-law because of her, the, her lack of family money. So the in-laws launched a harassment campaign against her. They threatened her. They tried to bribe her with a blank check to leave the boyfriend. The, the daughter-in-law ignored that, stayed committed to the guy because she's committed to him. Um, and so the mother-in-law then faked a heart attack and, blamed her ill health on the daughter-in-law and demanded that her son cover all the medical costs. Then, the day of the wedding, which the groom's family refused to attend, the bride is walking down the aisle in her beautiful white dress. She felt something hitting her back. Splatters of red paint were thrown at her, at her beautiful white gown. And that is because the husband's family hired someone to throw... Red painted her.
1: A red paint hitman.
0: A red paint hitman. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yep. Jeez. Yep. Wow. I mean, imagine seeing that on your wedding day. Just terrible.
1: I can't think of better revenge for this um spurned bride. This, this, uh, uh, this harassed bride. um Sell the life rights to that story because that's an amazing story. Oh, yeah, Turn true. it into a comedy. Like make it like a like a like a, a comedy movie. A rom com. A rom com. Get filthy rich. And you'll be even richer than this evil classist yeah. family that was trying to ruin your life.
0: Yeah, rubbing in their face, rubbing yeah. their faces. Yeah. So that's here. Isn't that terrible? And, but, but as Aaron pointed out, it could be, and isn't that uh, profitable? Fingers crossed. <laughs> Good telenovela. It took place in Mexico. So I'm just thinking, real audience there if you want to make a telenovela instead of a rom com. But either way, and those are the four basic food groups.
1: all right, for this week's guest, we are joined by Ambassador Chaz Freeman. He is a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs uh, and a former U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Also was the director for Chinese Affairs at the U.S. State Department, and he served as the principal interpreter during President Nixon's historic visit to China in 1972. And we are going to draw on Ambassador Freeman's extensive diplomatic experience to discuss the crises
2: in the world today.
1: Chaz Freeman, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be with you.
1: As we're recording this, there's just been this primary in Michigan where thousands of people in protest of Joe Biden's policies in Gaza voted uncommitted. I want to start by asking you your comments on that. And what do you think drives Biden to be so committed to... Israel's assault on Gaza, even as it costs him politically.
2: Well, I think the most interesting thing about this protest vote, which was, by the way, part of a very low turnout, demonstrating a distinct lack of enthusiasm for Biden as a candidate. And it also uh, was accompanied by significant votes uh, for two other candidates, uh, Marianne Williamson and uh, Dean Dean Phillips,
0: Phillips, whose whose name no one can uh, remember.
2: Uh, exactly And those were protest votes. So you had a low turnout of people who don't want to, didn't have any enthusiasm for Mr. Biden's candidacy. You had protest votes because nobody expects either Williamson or Phillips to be uh, to win the elect- the election. and you had the uncommitted vote. And one of the most interesting things to me is the immediate effort to portray the uncommitted vote, as an ethnic expression of Arab Americans. But you look at the vote in a place like Ann Arbor or elsewhere in Michigan, where there are no Arab Americans to speak of, and you see a significant uncommitted vote. So this wasn't just an ethnic protest by Arab or Muslim Americans. It was a general expression of disgust and disinterest in Biden's candidacy by quite a number of of demographic groups beginning with youth but even a few geezers like me probably the significance of this is pretty pretty great as we go into the into the fall election uh, here we have an election which is between someone who is widely regarded as senile a senile warmonger uh on the one hand and uh, somebody who has been correctly diagnosed by everyone but your father, Aaron, as a malignant na- narcissist. I, your father has the, still has the ethical principles not to do remote diagnoses, I believe. Anyway, I, I think this was a very significant moment and um, it uh, represented much more than it has been portrayed as representing.
1: And uh, in terms of Biden himself, he's displayed over the course of his career a deep commitment to Israeli government uh, massacres. Uh, There's a famous anecdote of even Menachem Begin, uh, the then Prime Minister of Israel 40 years ago, being offended at how bloodthirsty Biden was when it came to killing civilians in Lebanon. So what what do you think drives him to be so supportive of Israel, even as it costs him politically?
2: Well, I'm basically his age, uh, which means I shouldn't be in charge of anything. And um, I grew up in an era in which Leon Uris framed the debate. Um, You know, we all grew up very admiring of what we thought Israel represented. I don't think Biden's ever discovered that it doesn't represent those things. So that's the first thing. Second thing is uh, is the usual campaign donation racket. You know, you don't have any incentive to reexamine your position if doing so is going to cost you support. Uh, So you stick with it. Uh, and I think he is genuinely committed to Zionism. Um, why he is committed to Zionism would be interesting to have him explain. Uh, he has made various statements which suggest that he has very little grasp of the realities in the Middle East or strategic reasoning. Uh, and, but he's committed. And he's committed notwithstanding the fact that every time he talks to the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Netanyahu spits on him you know, and, and 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 insults him, and he just puts up with it. So this is a pretty strong commitment, um, but I'm not a, a psychologist and uh, uh, my expertise really isn't American politics, so I'll just have to leave it at that.
0: I heard you say in a recent interview that our foreign policy is diplomacy-free. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that and when it became diplomacy-free?
2: Yeah, um, diplomacy is the art of persuading foreigners to do things your way. And how do you do that? You persuade them to, to uh, accept that your definition of their interests uh, is correct and that it would serve their interests to do what you want them to do. Uh, that's diplomacy. Uh, it has been replaced uh, with a military message sending uh, system. So we bomb the Houthis, the de facto government in Yemen uh, in the name of sending them a message. We send a message to Hezbollah in the same manner. We send a message to the various resistance groups uh, scattered around the Middle East uh, and to their Iranian um, backers in the same way. Um, You know, it's a lot cheaper and more effective to sit down and talk to someone and to pull a gun on him and shoot him. But that's what we seem to have substituted for normal course of diplomatic interaction.
0: How would you describe what happens between, for instance, Israel and the United States? Is that even diplomacy or is that not even diplomacy? Because it doesn't seem like they're using any leverage. Is that just, I don't even know what the word would be that I could say.
2: Israel is a client state of the United States. What that means is it derives benefits from the United States. Uh, Those benefits are very considerable and they're on full display during this genocidal war. Um, Israel could not conduct this war without the constant emergency resupply of American weapons. It could not conduct it without American protection in the United Nations. So it's very clear what Israel gets out of this relationship, which is not grounded in any foreign policy consideration it is grounded entirely in domestic politics, fear of the Israel lobby, uh, campaign donations, uh, and um, domestic political calculations that um, it is expedient to support Israel. I don't know how many of the people who vociferously support Israel in Congress really sincere, are really sincere. I do know that they uh, are um, very much aware of the consequences of not supporting Israel. So um, this is the nature of the relationship. Is it diplomatic? No. Uh, If you want to, if you doubt that, remember the moment when Prime Minister Netanyahu was invited by the Republicans to come and address the Congress against the wishes of the president and did so receiving multiple kowtows and vociferous applause um, for, Basically disagreeing with the executive branch of the U.S. government. So, uh, this is, um, this is a formidable machine that is domestic in nature. Nobody can really point to strategic advantages from the Israel relationship. Uh, Israel does do a lot of useful military research, uh, under Pentagon contracts, but there's no reason in principle those couldn't be done in New Jersey. You know, Israel is gets us into wars in the Middle East or gets us into confrontations as it did during the Cold War on numerous occasions, um, risking nuclear exchanges and so forth. So I think this is the argument that somehow, I mean, the basic argument for supporting Israel has been first we share values. Well, Israel is demonstrating the values of the Ku Klux Klan and I don't share those values. And second, I mean, basically what's going on in Gaza, is a mass lynching. It's totally extrajudicial, illegal, and brutal, and utterly inhumane. And the second reason is supposedly that Israel is a strategic asset. But I have never heard anyone describe what it does for us other than get us in trouble. So I think this is a moment Uh, in which the Israelis have made a huge mistake um, because, you know, the question uh, they used to pose was, does Israel have a right to exist? Which is a rather strange question because it does exist. I don't know of other countries that run around asking whether they have a right to exist. But I think that question is being replaced now in much of the world by, does Israel deserve to exist? Can the world really uh, maintain normal relations with a country that behaves in utter disregard of international law and in a completely inhumane fashion? And I suspect the answer is not going to be uh, anything that Israel welcomes, or us, because we are entirely complicit in this, and we are inadvertently destroying the framework for global influence primacy that we established during the cold war and the immediate aftermath of it Um, the u.n is being discredited completely and we have seen in other contexts where international institutions have been uh, destroyed by our actions or inactions that others are now willing to step forward and develop ad hoc arrangements or workarounds or alternative uh, uh, institutions Look at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Look at the BRICS. Look at the Belt and Road Initiative centering on China. Look at the workarounds to the World Trade Organization dispute resolution mechanisms that are being developed on a bilateral basis. We are seeing the collapse of the order that we uh, claim to be trying to preserve, and it's collapsing largely because of our own actions or acts of omission. You know on the point about
1: Israel's uh, right to exist, Noam Chomsky has said that this issue really only arose in the 1970s after the Palestinian leadership and Arab states began calling for a Palestinian state. So the aim of calling on them to recognize Israel's so-called right to exist was to get them to accept a condition that would that would be impossible because the, they were asking, they were being asked basically not only to recognize Israel's existence, but also to recognize Israel's right to exist on stolen Palestinian land, which of course no Palestinian could ever accept. So the whole uh, uh, rhetoric was designed to undermine any call for a Palestinian state by imposing a condition that Palestinians could never accept.
2: No, I agree with you. The, The basic premise is a zero sum game for control of Palestine. If Israel has a right to exist by its own definition, since it has no borders, it constantly expands. Uh, If it has the right to exist, that implies it has the right to everything from the river to the sea, which is indeed in the Lukud Charter. Uh, So um, I think uh, this is a classic instance of settler colonialism. And you know, the question if you ask, well, who gave Israel the right to exist? It does seem to have been British imperialism, uh, colonial powers. Um, And to the extent that this had international sanction by the United Nations, which at the time was not composed of newly independent, previously colonized countries, it was a partition which greatly favored um, Jewish settlement, but which the Israelis overturned with a war. (laughs) They declared independence and, and drove the population out. Uh, So what is the basis for the right to exist? You know, and that's why I think this is very shaky. And um, people will ask, you know, given Israeli behavior, does it deserve to exist? And I think the answer may be unpleasant. When you were in government, did you ever
1: witness any serious attempts to use U.S. leverage over Israel to get it to uh, adhere to international law to to change its behavior?
2: Um, Once or twice, yes. uh, George H. W. Bush and Jim Baker did confront the Israelis on settlement activity. Um, didn't last very long, and uh, it it soon passed. But yes, um, there was there were serious efforts. Uh, there hasn't been any peace process for a quarter century. Of course, people keep talking about the peace process as though there is one, because it's convenient uh, as a sort of a magical trip. Hey, don't watch my what my hand is doing you know, look over here, Um, but um, the fact is that, uh, no, uh, the norm has been uh, preemptive capitulation to any demand uh, from the Israeli establishment. And that has been reinforced by all of the mechanisms at home that that we've mentioned.
0: So if the answer to Israel having the right to exist or, or whether it deserves to exist uh, and you said the answer may be unpleasant, what do you think the solution to that is? What would be the moral solution to Israel? And, and then do you think uh, something like South, what we saw in South Africa could ever happen?
2: Very difficult to imagine for many reasons. Um, I'm very familiar with the South African example. Um, I was in and out of apartheid era of South Africa. Um, I met with F.W. de Klerk when he had his revelation. The difference is that the South Africans, and by the way, it wasn't sanctions that drove the South Africans to end apartheid. Uh, it was much more complicated than that. Sanctions played a role. Uh, there was a sort of a BDS movement, um, but the most telling part of that from the South African white point of view was the ban on their participation in rugby internationally. Um, that was the national sport for the Afrikaners um, and when they were when when they were confronted with the fact that the world did not accept their narrative that they were an outpost of post of Christian Western civilization on the dark continent, um, they were deeply offended. But no, um, I don't see any signs of a similar crisis of conscience to the one that De Klerk had uh, occurring in Israel. That was the Dutch Reformed Church um there were many people in South Africa in the uh, not just in the Africa in the Anglo community but in the Afrikaner community uh, who um, were deeply moral and conscientious. Uh, there have been such people in Israel, many of them but they've emigrated. you know this is why you have uh, huge uh, Israeli communities in places like Berlin of all things. Um, you know, uh, these are people who are voting their conscience with their feet. And I note that since October 7, um, the loss of confidence in Israel's future by Israelis has led to a huge exodus. 500 plus 600,000 Israelis, all of whom, of course, had bolt holes previously prepared, have now left. Whether they'll go back is an interesting question. So I don't see it easily happening. I mean, Obviously, from the point of view of anybody who believes in constitutional democracy um, and liberal values, uh, the answer is a single democratic state, which I would note and would be dominated regardless of demographics uh, by, uh, uh, by the Jewish population with all of the educational and other advantages it has had in comparison to the Palestinians, not to disparage Palestinian uh, devotion to education and cleverness at business. Uh, Palestinians are very successful when they're allowed to be. Uh, that is the obvious solution. And yet there is now so much obvious hatred and basis for hatred that I find it impossible to imagine that, you know, South Africa was always on the verge of a race war, but it never had one. And, um, Israel is having a race war or Israel and Palestine are having a race war. And what Israel is doing in Gaza and elsewhere in the West Bank guarantees uh, that it will have a vastly large number of opponents in the future, uh, not just from Palestinians, the ranks of Palestinians. Look at this airman who burned himself in front of the Israeli embassy. Um, he did that as a moral gesture. Um, you know, people, Of course, the press immediately tries to say, well, what was his motive? Well, he declared his motive. You don't have to second-guess that. Um, They claim he's having mental problems, but there's no evidence of that. He was obviously just someone who was totally dismayed by what he was observing and felt he had to, as he said, act um, as he would have acted, he claimed, in the era of slavery, against slavery. Barack Obama,
1: after um, the self-immolation of Muhammad Bouazi uh, in Tunisia, which helped set off the Arab Spring. You know, he praised him. He praised his act, compared him to Rosa Parks and the Founding Fathers. We don't see anyone lofting such praise on Aaron Bushnell.
2: Well, uh, nobody here anyway. But here is another major issue. There is an enormous iron wall now between our media and the world. Uh, The world is seeing very different things than we are seeing, and uh, has a very different mindset. So, you know, we have certain catchphrases that we use, which uh, are part of an information warfare uh, system. For example, the Iranian backed Houthis, implying that they're acting on behalf of Iran. They have no agency. They have no reason to be upset about the mass murder in Gaza. Um, and their explanation of why they are targeting not all shipping, but those ships connected with Israel or the supporters of Israel, namely the United States and the United Kingdom is dismissed. And instead we hear they're doing indiscriminate restriction of, of shipping. Well, that is not true. Uh, we hear Iranian-backed this, Iranian-backed that. Nobody says um, American-backed Israel is murdering people. You know, this is, Uh, All this language is extremely prejudicial, and it frankly has no credibility beyond our borders, um, except perhaps in a few places in Europe uh, or other places where there are fascists and white nationalists and other people of that sort who are not ashamed to be racist.
0: And have you always had, uh, you've had a long career in diplomacy, you were Nixon's translator. Have your politics changed over the years?
2: Um, no, I, I, I served my country for 30 years with great pride. Um, I didn't, frankly, uh, the last thing on earth I ever wanted to do was become involved with the Middle East, which is where hypocrisy first got a bad name. Um, and um, I went to Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> well, I was in Maputo, Mozambique, trying to. Uh, pry the Frelimo government out of the East German and Cuban embrace. Uh, and I got a call from George H.W. Bush, who, ha- who asked me if I would be his representative and ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And I was silent. I mean, you know, I, it, you're supposed to be enthusiastic at such a moment. Um, I didn't have any enthusiasm at all. Um, uh, but anyway, I went there. Um, and I dutifully supported the, uh, I was there during the Gulf War, which was probably the ambassadorship of the century. Um, and I supported the Madrid process, which followed it, which was an effort to normalize Israel's relations with the rest of the region. Um, you know, I mean, Israel is a remarkable phenomenon. and it, it has existed for three quarters of a century, and it has not made a single friend in its area. It has friends in distant places, but there's not a single country in the region that has any fondness for Israel at all. Um, And when it has been able to normalize relations with others, as it did with Egypt under our auspices, kicking and screaming, as it did so, um, Jimmy Carter has paid a huge price for making peace, uh, being excluded from the Democratic Convention and other things. by vindictive Zionists. Um, anyway, um, when, uh, when, when the peace happened, it has been a very cold peace. And it's actually now in jeopardy because if Israel does attack Rafah in the manner it appears to be uh, preparing to do and pushes Palestinians out of uh, Gaza um, or conducts the, the level of massacre that would otherwise occur, I think it may lose the Camp David framework uh, with Egypt. It's certainly the Egyptians are signaling that that might be the case. This is going to leave a lot of terrible debris behind it, whatever happens. It's not just dead Palestinians or dead Israelis on October 7th. You know, nobody should have to die in the manner that either of them did. But it's going to be the aftermath of this is going to be pose an existential challenge to to israel uh, to the international system that we created after world war ii and to our global prestige and, and i i'm really very concerned not just about the inhumanity of it but about the consequences
1: have you ever seen anything like what israel is doing now in terms of you know this bombardment of this small densely populated area Mostly defenseless Hamas doesn't have air defenses or, or tanks, anything anything approaching a, a conventional military. well also meanwhile you know using humanitarian aid as a weapon you know consciously depriving Gaza of all the basics, leaving people to starve.
2: Well, I wasn't alive during the Warsaw Ghetto, but that, this is very similar to that uh, or the starvation by the Nazis of Leningrad. Um, which was a deliberate effort to m- murder millions of people, uh, by depriving them of sustenance. I've never seen anything like this. I did observe the Khmer Rouge, um, uh, go berserk and murder huge numbers of people in Cambodia, uh, which was horrifying. I'm not sure that on a moral level, this is much different. Uh, but, uh, the circumstances are different. The Perpetrator is different. And you know, the the idea that something calling itself the Jewish state, which I think is an insult to Judaism, frankly, um, could be conducting genocide. And that people in the United States who speak for Zionism could be saying to criticize genocide is anti-Semitic or to criticize Zionism is anti-Semitic. This is amazing, I find it, I think it's really really uh and it comes down to you know the collateral damage from all of this uh the two of you um are uh nonconformists in the journalistic world you perform a very useful service in my view an essential one but who who are the enemies of free speech in our country who is opposed to the first amendment the adl yes um, APAC, yes. Why are there 30 states which require companies who want to do business with the state to sign a pledge that they won't support a boycott of Israel? When did we lose our right to petition the government to speak freely? Um, and how did we lose it? And who to whom did we lose it? So I find this really amazing because uh, in my experience, Most American Jewish communities, whatever their stand on Israel is, tend to be liberal and supporters of free speech, except in this context.
0: Right, there's that term pep, progressive except on Palestine.
2: Yep. And that is very strange. Um, uh, You know, some of the most ethical people I know are uh, adherents of Judaism. Um, And the most outspoken people, by the way, against the horrors that are being committed by Israel have been mostly Jews. And I admire them for that. But, um, you know, I'm not a Jew. And if I speak out, I'm (laughs) anti-Semitic. Really quite remarkable.
0: How does what we're seeing in Israel and Palestine right now relate to what we're seeing in Ukraine?
2: It comes on top of the loss of credibility for the West globally that Ukraine has produced. Um, you know, and we still have people who are running around spouting delusional nonsense about Ukraine recovering uh, territory and doing this, that, and the other. What is actually happening on the battlefield in Ukraine at the moment is very dismaying. Um, and you see a lot of turmoil in Western capitals and even more in Kyiv, resulting from the fact that the Russians are now clearly on, effectively on the offensive and advancing. And Ukraine, Ukraine's defenses have been breached, and it is falling back in a disorderly fashion, losing an incredible number of um, soldiers as it does so. Uh, we see Zelensky's turn runs out May 20. Um, there are people in Kiev who seem to be plotting a coup against him. Uh, there are others positioning themselves like the head of the parliament, the speaker of the parliament in Ukraine, the who um, is is saying that, well, since Zelensky's term is up, he should be the leader of Ukraine. Um, And what's fascinating to me is at this moment when things are falling apart, we have a kind of a parallel phenomenon in the West where President Macron comes out in France and says, well, gee, maybe we should think about sending troops to Ukraine. Of course, he's immediately shouted down by other members of NATO. Uh, who don't want to get into a war directly with Russia and would prefer to have Ukrainians do the fighting and die uh, rather than us. Uh, But um, again, uh, nobody is talking about a negotiated solution. Uh, Nobody is saying, everybody is saying, well, Putin is evil. Uh, He's obviously the devil incarnate. You can't believe anything he says. Well, the easiest way to determine that we don't have to deal with, him is not to listen to him, and of course Tucker Carlson just broke that barrier uh, resoundingly. I believe he's had a billion views of um, his interview with Putin, where he mostly let Putin talk, um, not terribly effectively on a number of issues, I would say, but uh, express his own views, um, which was refreshing since we've not heard anything from that quarter for two and a, two plus years. So. Putin has been saying consistently since December of 2021, I want to negotiate. And and in fact, it was only when he was stiff-armed by us uh, that he did the obvious thing, which we had predicted, namely he used force in Ukraine. And five weeks later, he agreed to a withdrawal from Ukraine and the restoration of the Minsk Accords. And and, uh, Ukraine agreed to neutrality. And then we stepped in and uh, reversed that. so it seems the the point in common between what is happening in Palestine now and what has been happening in Ukraine is bloodthirsty warmongering by the West. Uh, That is the common feature Uh, and delusional thinking um, and denial, you know, well, Uh, Why on God's earth did anyone ever believe that Ukraine uh, could defeat uh, Russia? Uh, Answer, wishful thinking. Uh, Well, if you hold on to wishful thinking long enough, you're um, uh, you're definitely at least neurotic and probably psychotic. (laughs) Aaron, your father will tell you um, that the difference between a neurotic and a psychotic it's simple, the, the uh, psychotic thinks that two plus two is five, and he's prepared to kill you to prove that. And the neurotic knows that it means that it equals four, but he's very unhappy about that. <laughs> and this is the way in which we have been dealing with these things, totally unrealistically. I mean, if we were an individual, we would have been committed years ago.
1: Well, I keep going back to the fall of 2022, when Ukraine actually makes some... Impressive gains. They expelled Russia from two major provinces, Kurson and Kharkiv. And that's when General Mark Milley, who has been closely planning Ukraine's strategy every single week, speaking to his counterpart in Ukraine at the Times Illusiony, comes out and says, let's have diplomacy. This is great. Ukraine's in a good position. They can consolidate their gains now at the negotiating table. This is the top U.S. military officer in the U.S. And basically everybody tells him to shut up. And the US media just sort of goes along with this and they, they reported his comments, but they didn't sort of grasp the significance of the top US multi-officer calling for diplomacy, while all of the so-called diplomats led by Antony Blinken are calling for more war. You know, in your experience, have you ever seen something like that where the, the chair of the Joint Chiefs is urging the administration to reverse its policy and engage its diplomacy and the so-called diplomats refuse because they want war? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Well, that was great. And, you know, there was a moment there where Ambassador Freeman says that he's too old, like Biden is, to be in charge of anything. But I strongly disagree. I would love it if Ambassador Freeman was- president. President or back in one of his old positions in the State Department or the Pentagon. This country and this world would be far better off.
0: Agreed. Agreed. And so insightful and it's always interesting to talk to someone who has real experience.
1: Yeah, and real courage. I mean, he calls it as he sees it as he sees yeah. it. He's not afraid to call out all of the horrors that we're currently inflicting on the world today. And it's very rare when someone from the heart of the establishment has the courage to call it out.
0: So thank you so much to Chaz Freeman for joining us. Thank you all for watching. Make sure that you check out the website usefulidiotspodcast.com and become members if you're not already so you can see the extended interview with Chad freeman as well as thursday throwdown
1: we'll see you next time bye everybody thanks so much for listening to and watching useful idiots for extended episodes bonus content and our weekly thursday throwdown episode please subscribe at usefulidiotspodcast.com support the show for free by subscribing on youtube rumble and wherever you get your podcasts if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.